This is the University of Applied Research and Development's Emergency Response and Risk Management video and podcast. You'll meet world-class leading professionals who share their wisdom, careers, and experiences. Join us on YouTube and all quality podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and Radio Public. Welcome, this is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development for our Emergency Response and Risk Management podcast and videocast. I'm delighted to have Ian Shaw with us, who has 30 plus years experience in oil and gas, a consultant, advisory roles with many uh, oil and gas companies, and also an operating partner in Kerrigan Capital. Delighted to have you with us, Ian. No, thank you for inviting me, Craig, and it's uh, an absolute pleasure to uh, spend some time with you today. Please share with us what you're doing now, your roles, how you're involved. Okay, no, that'd, that'd be great. So, um, as you say, I've got about 30 years experience in the oil and gas industry, uh, predominantly in operational leadership and operational management roles. Um, about four years ago, uh, I was working for BG Group that got acquired by Shell. And at that stage, I made the decision not to go back into another sort of oil and gas company, but to try a different career approach. And I've gone for what is fashionably now known as a portfolio career. So uh, as you say, I have some non-executive roles, uh, advisory roles, including my role with Kerrigan Capital as an operating partner and also set up for Acrometis, which is a boutique consultancy, primarily into oil and gas. Um, if I reflect what I'm doing now and where most of my time is being spent, it, uh, it is with Acrometis. Um, we have pulled together a great team of really experienced oil and gas practitioners, um, really sort of leveraging many years experience, but also individuals that were forward looking and had a commercial mindset. So we spend a lot of our time advising executive teams, supporting management teams in how they can improve their business and their operating models. Um, you know, when, when you think of some of the major consultancies that we all are aware of, they're full of very intelligent people, but often they lack some of the practical experience that I think we can bring. So I sometimes see us as a very effective bridge between, you know, strategy and practical experience that can drive uh, performance. What I do recognize from uh, the interviews you've done so far is that maybe my background is slightly different from some of your uh, previous interviewees. But having worked in a hazardous industry for over 30 years, um, I'm afraid I've had my fair share of emergencies that I've had to deal with and crises to manage. So hopefully we can have a useful discussion. Yeah, that'd be great. I think that's a good jumping point. Can you share some of those experiences that you have had and been involved in? Sure, sure. Well, if I 
Go back 30 years. I uh, was actually in Aberdeen on the day that Piper Alpha occurred. And uh, for those that are unfamiliar, um, Piper Alpha was, I think at the time, and still is one of the, if not the most serious oil and gas incident that has occurred. It occurred in July 1988, and uh, 167 people were killed. And to some extent, that formed the next few years of my industry experience. I was literally um, one month away from doing my first trip to an offshore platform when Piper Alpha happened, and that did transform the industry. Um, it transformed the approach to managing incidents uh, as there was the response with the Cullen inquiry and subsequent Cullen report that looked at preventing such a serious incident happening and occurring again. And I think that brought some professionalism into how the industry dealt with the emergencies. So you know, as I look at my career, what have I had to deal with? I've had to deal with some very tragic events, actually. Um, one that that will stay in my mind for, for, for forever. Um, again, was it July? But this was July, 16th of July, 2002, where I was responsible. At that time, I was working for Shell, and I was responsible for their operations in the UK Southern North Sea. And um, we unfortunately had a fatal helicopter crash, which resulted in 11 deaths. Um, and that's quite a sobering thought, but actually, you know, the management of the emergency in that was quite a stressful situation. And I sort of led parts of the, man of the emergency response. Mm. That's quite a challenging situation to be in, especially when you're offshore. How did, how did you respond? Did you have a model in mind that you've been trained with? Yeah, I think this is, this is why I think it's appropriate to refer back to Piper Alpha and the training that has taken place. Um, in that there were structures put in place for the management of, of emergencies. And we were able to approach it in that way. I think... The is it interesting? You know, one part of that incident that made it slightly different from some of the emergency training that takes place in the industry is the management of the emergency as such was over very quickly. Yeah, so a lot of emergency response training in the oil and gas industry is rightly focused on preventing escalation. It's about containing the incident such that it does not escalate into a full major accident hazard event. In the case of a helicopter crash, actually the incident has occurred and you very quickly move from emergency response, what I would say to crisis management and recovery. Because in essence, the event is not going to escalate any further beyond by the way, trying to obviously recover the people as quickly as possible because that's mm. you know, the escalation is limiting the number of deaths. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, that it's quite different than something happening like a big storm or a fire, which can progress, whereas the helicopter crash is an incident, which is a, a bit different. Are there other experiences that you've had as well that you could share with us? Um, for sure. Um, but I think, actually, it is interesting to focus on some incidents that could have escalated and that mm. contained, because that's... That is what a lot of the training in the industry is focused on for emergencies. So, you know, hydrocarbon leaks. So one of the causes of Piper Alpha was a hydrocarbon leak that were um, that ignited. In unfortunately, in that case, um, I have had unfortunately a number of of hydrocarbon leaks. Um, one in particular springs to mind that that was of a could have been of a similar magnitude in terms of volume of initial leak to piper alpha and your focus is immediately on containing it removing the hydrocarbons and preventing ignition and that's what you're trained to do and actually i think the industry has got increasingly proficient in that area Mm. Um, and I try and think of some of the key things that that come to me when you're managing that. In that particular case, we had around about 250 people on board the installation. And the alarm goes off. And of course, you know, your first reaction is it's an alarm, but you don't actually know what it is. As the emergency leader you go in and it's very quickly trying to absorb a lot of information but at the same time you have to remember you have you know 200 plus people who are slowly starting to realize this is not a drill actually something very real is happening Mm. so in your rush to absorb as much information as possible I think it's critical to make sure you also communicate. Part of containing uh, an incident is maintaining a degree of control over the whole population. Because anyone who's managed an incident in those situations will tell you one of the most challenging things is understanding where everybody is and getting a head count to actually know how many people are put at risk by being in the area of the incident. So I think communication is very important. Being able to absorb that initial information and have containment and prevention of escalation forefront in your mind. Hmm. And of course, then decision-making. And, I, was to, um, I was going to ask about that, that continued decision-making process. Please carry on. Yeah, no, so it is about decision-making. Um, I've seen, interestingly, part of one of my roles, I actually used to assess uh, the management of major emergency training for, for uh, offshore installation managers. And one of the weaknesses I saw there was that people was indecision. I think in emergency response, making a decision 
is always preferable to indecision. Mm. Now, that does not mean you are always going to make the right decision. That doesn't mean that you don't have to reflect and adjust and adapt as the information comes in and the circumstances change. But paralysis through indecision, I think, really wastes those precious few moments you have, particularly in the initial stages of it, to really nip it in the bud and prevent escalation. Hmm. But also, sorry, sorry, I can see you say something, but also just to say that this is where practice, this is where sort of a formulaic approach helps. You don't want to be making new decisions on things that can just be practiced and become part of habit. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, I know Dan, you said about weaknesses or gaps in decision versus decision making as one of those. What might be some of the other weaknesses or gaps that cause things to escalate? Okay, so so that's an interesting question. Of course, there's there's many things that can cause escalation, but I think indecision is is important. So so it's important to be decisive. And it's also important to understand what you don't know. You know, it is okay for you not to be an expert in everything. So certainly, and I've done roles at both sides of this. So, you, you know, you can be at a facility managing the incident, but at the same time, most mature companies will have an emergency response center where people will be on duty and they'll be able to support you with some of the technical expertise you don't have. It is not unusual to see people in, in the tunnel of an incident to forget the support network that they have around them and to leverage that. So it is important to sort of acknowledge that there are people who can help and they can help support your knowledge gaps. I think it is wrong to say they become your decision makers. You are there, you understand the context in which you're operating, but they can help give you some of that knowledge you don't have. And of course, the other aspect, looking the other way, looking down to the people who are actually at the front line addressing the incident, maybe you know, your medical team, your fire team, they have to trust you. Now, that's a trust that you have to earn. Um, hopefully, you've already earned it before the incident. But even in the incident, you've got to maintain their trust by listening to them and instilling confidence to them that you are, you know what you're doing and you are trying to make the right decisions. Mm. So decision-making, remembering you have support and building trust before and during through the reassurance and communicating and involving. That's really great. I think, um, Ian, at the moment, the industry is in a little bit of turmoil. There's some uncertainty in oil and gas about where it's going. 
Where do you think the, the industry is going to go next? Yeah, so the industry's in a difficult place. It's, it's not the first time the industry's been in, in a difficult place, but, but there are some, some unique aspects to this, of course. It's actually dealing with three crises at the same time, and how the approach for each of those is different and the outcome of them will be different. So the first crisis is, and as we speak today, um, we're still in a global pandemic with the COVID-19 um, sort of pandemic, which of course is just creating a number of operational issues inside all industries of which the oil and gas industry is not unique. At the same time, we have the low commodity price, which is creating a price pressure. And this is occurring in the context of an energy transition and a climate crisis that the industry is going to have to address um, most likely at the same time. So these are three crises that have come. Interestingly enough, I think the COVID crisis from the companies I'm speaking to daily is something that to some degree is within the comfort zone of the industry. It's the oil and gas industry is very action orientated. As I said, it's very much sort of emergency response is something that's become part of its DNA. So managing an event like sort of COVID is something that has been done very well. Interestingly, I'm unsure of how much thought is being put into the longer term consequences. The industry is not as smart, unfortunately, at thinking strategically and looking out beyond today. So we are certainly speaking to clients that sort of are we've dealt with covid that's okay when everything is back to normal in 12 months we will be good and reflecting on whether there is a new normal to use the very fashionable phrase is something they are probably less prepared for but in terms of managing covid in itself and the disease in itself they have done very well. The commodity price, the commodity price is, is more challenging. So uh, as maybe some of your uh, some students will be aware, you know, we did have the oil price crash of 2014, which put a shock into the system. I don't think the whole system had recovered from that. And we're now talking about a, a supply and demand balance such that this is likely to be a prolonged uh, low price environment. Uh, Lord Brown, Lord John Brown, who was the CEO of BP and even today has representation on a number of oil and gas industry companies, um, has indicated that in his view, we could be looking at low oil prices similar to what happened in the 80s that was around about 17 years. So 
this is very much about adjusting for a continuous low oil environment. And I would again reflect that companies can deal with short term, they're more challenged with long term. So, you know, a lot of the actions that you see taken by companies today are dealing with short term liquidity, short term cash flow problems, rather than necessarily building a business that can be sustainable you know, at low commodity prices in the longer term. So we're seeing a lot of what I would suggest are typical reactions to short-term liquidity, which aren't necessarily setting the businesses up for long-term sustainability at these prices, which unfortunately we'll see some companies not successfully coming out of this. What are some of the strategies that you would suggest, if, if you don't mind, that the um, oil companies could do to make themselves more successful in the long term? Sure. So, interestingly, so, so one of the, um, I want to say, traditional steps that's taken when you're short of cash flow is you go out to your supply chain and you just say, right, guys, we just need you all to reduce your prices by X percent. In fact, I was involved with one company a few years ago that just went to all of their suppliers and just sent them new contracts with a 30% price reduction and said, take it or leave it. Um, they were a big company. And so I have to say most of the supply chain took it, but that's a short term measure. I mean, COVID has exposed to many weaknesses in supply chain. And so at the same time as we are talking about a cost pressure, we're actually trying to look at getting more resilient supply chains. Well, you know, there's many approaches to supply chain resilience, but in part, uh, I certainly believe that one effective way of addressing that is actually working and partnering more closely with your supply chain. I think this is particularly the case for some of the smaller companies. Um, I referred to the 30% reduction case. They were a big company. Uh, actually, they were always going to be valuable to the supply chain. Their volume was such that, you know, they, they were a company that the supply chain could not opt out of right. working with. So you have to look at how you can make yourself as a smaller company more valuable to your supply chain, more valuable to your suppliers. And I think part of that is partnering. Part of that is around a more appropriate risk and reward balance between your supply chain partners and, and yourselves. So that's certainly one area and I think some of the immediate reactions that people take actually can be um, counterproductive to achieving that in the longer term. But more generally, I think you have to look at your operating model. You have to look at, at digital. You have to look at how you're going to leverage technology. So, um, 
digital twins, which is something that's been that the industry has been working on, where people don't have to go to facilities for various functions, um, particularly in the engineering sphere, is something that people are going to have to look at. And that works, by the way, in many dimensions. If you can remove the need for people to go to facilities, there is a cost incurred, obviously, with putting people on facilities. Going back to trying to control emergencies and mitigate escalation, the less people that are there, the less people you can hurt. So, you know, there are ramifications of smart use of technology that can not only give you a more sort of sustainable business in terms of you know, performance, actually it can make you a safer business. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Ian, just as we wrap up, I'd love for you to share some career advice for people who may be new to the industry or um, graduating from one of our programs. What are some experiences, training, things that they can think about and prepare themselves with for a long-term career in the industry? Well, the first thing to say is uh, I think the industry still is a viable industry to enter and you can still have a very fruitful and long-term career in the industry. Um, I didn't talk very much about the third crisis that was climate change and the energy transition, but you know it is likely more than likely that gas for sure will be one of the transition fuels and there is a future particularly in gas you know taking you 2050 and beyond so it is still a, you know a viable career option and as we start to look at some of the digital and some of the other aspects actually you build transferable skills so it's an industry in which you can build very robust, transferable skills. As for career advice, I'd like to say I had this career plan laid out at 20, and it's all worked to that plan, and I'm exactly where I thought I would be, but that would make me a liar. <laughs> so I had no career plan. Um, beyond the fact that I wanted to be really good at what I do. So uh, I fairly early on decided that you know, that broad operational management was what interested me. So first piece of career advice, do what interests you. Um, you know, I'm not going to say I've skipped to work every day with joy, but I can say on average I have enjoyed more days going to work than I not so do what you are interested in and what it, you know you enjoy and then try to be good at it make sure you can be good at it so most of my opportunities have come through the fact that they have seen that I have worked hard and I have tried to be successful in each role I have done and opportunities open up and Try to be someone whose default is yes rather than no when opportunities arise because yes will open doors. That's great. I love that advice about trying to be excellent in whatever we do and doing a good job. I, I absolutely agree. It sets you up for success in whatever may come going forward. 
Exactly. Yeah, look, I love that. Ian, I really want to thank you for your time. I know you've got many things going on today, this week and this month and many responsibilities. So the fact that you've given us your time, it's very much appreciated. Thank you. Being a pleasure. 